One was this hope-filled optimist who only ever saw the bright side of life. And the other was a pessimist who always looked at the dark side of things. The parents were so worried about the extreme optimism and pessimism in their boys that they took them to the doctor. And the doctor suggested a plan. On Christmas Day, give the pessimist a shiny new bike and give the optimist a pile of manure. It seemed a fairly extreme thing to do. After all, they had always tried so hard to treat their children the same. But they decided to try the doctor's advice. So when Christmas morning came around, they gave the pessimist the most expensive racing, racing bike available, and they gave the hope-filled optimist a pile of manure. When the pessimistic twin opened his bike, he shrugged. He looked at his parents and said, I'll probably just crash and break my leg. But then it came time for the hopeful boy to open the carefully wrapped box of manure. He opened it, looked puzzled for a moment, and then ran outside screaming, you can't fool me where there's this much manure. There's got to be a pony around here somewhere. <laughs> I love that story for two reasons. First, it's a great illustration of hope. There's this Swiss philosopher, Alain de Baton, and he says something similar. The difference between hope and despair is just a different way of telling stories from the same facts. But I also like this story because any story that has manure in it is good. And this is what happens when they let the student pastor speak. We do want to welcome you again here this morning. My name is Ian. I'm the student pastor here, and we're thrilled that you would join us um, during your Advent season. Hope. The world could really use more hope. There's such a, a shortage of it. It seems like as a society, we've just resigned ourselves to things being a certain way. And the church is not exempt from this hope shortage. You know, we're discouraged, we're tired. And from the world stage to our personal lives, hope is being chipped away. Now, if you've been around church, you're used to hearing biblical hope as maybe distinguished from positive, wishful thinking. And that's a good thing because we use the word hope in everyday language. I hope I get a good grade on that test. I hope you feel better. Or for you parents of young kids out there, I'm hoping for just 15 minutes of peace and quiet this Christmas. Just 15. But hope is more than a wish, more than self-dependent desire. It's this confident expectation of what God has promised. John Piper says that biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it. An Advent season is all about expectancy. We are intentionally reinserting ourselves into the story of God, imagining what it must have been like to be at the turn from B.C. to A.D. And the people of God were hoping, expecting that century-old prophecies would soon be fulfilled and their hopes were being realized. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go further. Father God, we know that hope is something that we desperately need, but far too often we go to the wrong places looking for it. So Lord, I ask that you would use our time this morning, that your word would be faithfully proclaimed, that we would walk away fully convinced and assured of the hope that we have in Jesus. Lord, we recognize that this week has been incredibly hard for so many. 
health issues, loss of family. Lord, we know that we have to cling to the hope that you give. Lord, I ask that you would speak mightily through your word this morning, through the power of the Spirit who is here. We do not need to invite you in because you are here. So I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I had to do my message in a sentence, it would be, we have to experience hope to offer hope. I realize I just summarized the message. Please don't leave. (laughs) We have to experience hope to offer hope. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to John 8. That's where we're going to be this morning. And we're following Jesus as he continues to teach the people a mostly Jewish audience. And the Feast of Tabernacles of John 7 has finished up. And some have already put their faith in Jesus. But many, mostly religious types, are still kind of hung up on what Jesus is claiming. I am the living water. I am the hope of the world. And those are massive claims that are either blasphemous, crazy, or true. And they don't quite get it. So we'll pick up mid-discussion at verse 31. So this is John 8, starting at 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know and the truth will set you free. Hope starts with truth. Hope starts with truth. This is the truth of the gospel, right? That God initiated a way for us to spend eternity with him. That Jesus stands in our place. That he's taking care of the world's sin issue. Matt Chandler, who's one of my favorite pastors, describes the gospel this way. My sin in the past, forgiven. My current struggles, covered. My future failures, paid in full, all by the marvelous, infinite, matchless grace found in the atoning work of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the truth of hope confirmed by the obedience to his teaching. And we see those dots connected elsewhere in scripture. And I just want to point us to Hebrews 6 because it is the same audience, that same Jewish audience. So as we read this, watch for the connection between truth and hope. The author of Hebrews writes, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, 
we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. So Hebrews 6 ties truth and hope together. Through the truth, our hope is an anchor for our lives. Jesus has gone before us. This hope could have been so meaningful to the Jewish people. Children of Abraham are heirs of promise, and God is further revealing himself to them. So we'll keep you know, returning to that truth throughout the morning, but to illustrate where we often place our hope instead, I made a list. Now, if you know me, that doesn't surprise you because I'm like way type A, like annoyingly so. Are there other type A people in the room? Yes. I feel like all the type A people have to apologize to all the type B people. We're a little annoying. But this is, this is my list that demonstrates why hope must start with truth versus somewhere else. And I've titled the list, Four Ways to Suck the Life Out of Hope. Number one, hope in yourself. We like to blame Hollywood storytelling for this, but I think we do a pretty good job of this on our own. I see a lot of Christians post memes that say, believe in yourself. You only have to look inside. You have the answer already. What? Like, I don't got all the answers. You don't got all the answers. We should stop that. So hope starts with truth, not yourself. Number two, hope in people. Now, I think I have the best friends in the world, and a lot of my friends follow Jesus. It's life-giving to spend time with them and to find security. But I'm prone to putting my hope in people. I'll go to people before going to the Lord. I'll think more on human relationships than divine relationship. And I've noticed that when I go through a long stretch of putting my hope in people, there's a hopelessness. My hopelessness increases the longer that I do that. So hope starts with truth, not people. Number three, hope in money. We desire this financial security. We want our kids to go to good colleges. We live in a treat yourself culture. And Jesus talked more about money than anything else. In a season when we're probably spending more than usual, let's be careful where we're putting our hope. You know, easier for a camel to go through the, eyes of, through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Like, yes, it is difficult to have money and to still have hope that starts with truth. So hope starts with truth, not money. And number four, hope in the government. We don't literally say that we're hoping in the government, but watch how we respond to elections and policy changes. Our response will reflect, you know, where our hope lies. And where are we expecting that change? Is it in Washington or is it starting with us? So hope starts with truth, not the government. Now it's normal for people to put their hope in these things, maybe even without realizing it. But what are we left with when they all break down? The older I get, the more I realize how unreliable those things are. And that's okay because they were never meant to be a starting point for hope. But it's a scary place to be, to have these aspects of life all come crashing down and not have the truth of Jesus. We have to experience hope 
to offer hope. That first step is to experience it by embracing the truth. And what better time than Advent to return to hope is found in Jesus. Look back with me at John 8, 33 through 36. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in a family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Hope brings freedom. Consider the Jewish people's history of slavery. Their oppression in Egypt followed by a cycle of freedom and captivity. Like it was ingrained in their minds. Freedom was so valuable and that's why this was so offensive to them. Christ claims that it's not religious heritage or bloodline that's going to bring freedom. He's saying that their spiritual captivity is worse than their status under Rome. And he's adding this great equalizer. Everyone is a slave to sin, Jew and Gentile. Jesus' audience was confronting what we all confront, which is that the gospel must first be felt as bad news before it can be felt as good news. And they didn't like it. If Jesus sets you free, you're no longer a slave to sin. You won't spend eternity away from him. We can't underestimate sin. Richard Rohr says, sin is the state of being closed down, shut off, blocked. It's a closing down into separateness. And Jesus doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want it for anyone. How awesome is it that in John 8, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one whom I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. And in him, the nations will put their hope. Hope is for everyone and it's a hope that brings freedom. Freedom from anxiety, freedom from the way people might think of you. And freedom for a certain way of living, that John 10.10 life, life to the full. Eagle Church, are we experiencing the hope that brings freedom? Our freedom isn't ambiguous. Hope brings freedom from sin, both present and future. Now, we really like the future part, right? We really look forward to the future in heaven where there's no longer consequences, But what about freedom from sin now? Just a couple weeks ago, I was meeting with one of our students. It's one of my favorite things to do. And she had been away from church for a season. Some bad things had happened to her. She had also pursued some poor decisions. But she had decided that she was at a turning point where she was going to claim truth again. She was going to claim Jesus again. And she was experiencing this new freedom Like, it was visible. You could see it on her face. That difference is obvious. If the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. Students, adults, has our hope brought about freedom? Freedom from gossip and disobedience, coarse language, unforgiveness. If not, okay, 
Like, let's, let's look at Jesus more. Let's go back to him, see what he's done for us. I don't think people quickly move from hope in Jesus to hopelessness. Normally, there's a pit stop somewhere in the middle where there's an extended time of replacing hope in Jesus with hope in something else. The church is the place to address it. We're all broken people here, right? And it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. This week, I stumbled upon a story about a guy named Joel, and I wanted to share it with you all. Joel was 12 when he first found Playboy magazines. From that point on, porn was a regular part of his life in high school and college. He could easily find images and purposely keep them in mind for later. During law school, Joel accepted Jesus and soon met the prettiest, most wonderful woman in the world. They were married shortly after. But the lustful thoughts and temptations didn't go away. Joel's wife joined a church staff, and he became active in the church. They were the model couple, but his secret sins were still there. He would tearfully beg God to take away the temptations, even writing out every verse that deals with sexual immorality in the hope that his actions would conform to what he read. Joel finally became so fearful of what he might do that he went to his pastor, who reassured him, told him that he loved him. He began the journey towards God by having a repentant heart and in confessing his sins. And here are Joel's words. For the first time in my life, I actually felt free. My community showed that I could live in freedom. It was going to take work, but I knew there was hope. I share Joel's story with you because I'm burdened by it. This issue is robbing men of hope and freedom. The last stat I read was 68%. That's two-thirds of church-going men who are looking at porn. Men, husbands, fathers, students. Could Advent 2018 be the time when Christmas ushers in freedom over this sin. This is really personal to me. I know this struggle, and I have to fight to hold on to the promised hope that we need not live in that darkness. Would it not be a game changer if this Advent was the beginning of new hope for our men? Like, don't you want that? My experience working with students, going to Bible college, and living in Christian community has shown that freedom over sexual sin is possible, but rare. It wrecks marriages and friendships and our witness to a hopeless world. I've never met anyone who, you know, gives into this sin and still has a lot of hope. It just doesn't happen. And the Lord is laying on our hearts that we have to offer hope here like, this has to be a safe place, a place of hope and freedom. So you can talk to me, Eric, Justin, anyone you trust, because you need not feel isolated in this struggle. The church is not here to shame you. The church is here for you. But maybe you're here this morning, and you're wrestling with a totally different type of sin. 
Jesus wants to set you free. Maybe you're hoping for reconciliation. Maybe you're so jealous of someone that it's stealing your joy. Maybe you just need freedom from bitterness. How we'd love for those weights to be lifted this Advent season as we return to hope. So we have to experience hope to offer hope. That first step is to experience it by embracing truth. And then the second step is to experience freedom. Look back once more with me at John 8, this time starting at verse 37. Jesus says, I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Hope overcomes the religious spirit. Some of the people gathered were the same who would be crucifying Jesus just a year later. Religious people hated Jesus. And here they are claiming their ancestry again as a stake to God the Father. Jesus says, if you were a part of Abraham's family, you would do what Abraham did, but you're not. Instead, you're plotting to kill me. What stands out most to me is when Jesus says, you are ready to kill me because you have no hope or because you have no place for my word. Jesus was new revelation. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and was God. Those whose hearts were inclined to hear this new voice of God in Jesus, they quickly recognized the voice of the Lord. But those entrenched in their religious world, in their traditions, they missed it. Hope overcomes the religious spirit. The religious spirit says to Joel, shame on you, stop that. The religious spirit will look at the woman caught in adultery that Eric spoke on last week by picking up stones. The religious spirit doesn't understand, come as you are. The religious spirit doesn't offer hope. According to theologian Gary Burge, the reflex that cannot see God in the prophetic voice of Jesus that rebels and fights and attacks is the work of Satan. It strikes us as harsh, you know, with our modern sensitivities, but that's exactly what Jesus is saying. If Jesus stepped in to 2018 and walked into our evangelical churches and challenged the way we do things, would we cheer or would we fight? 
by nature of what the religious spirit is, those who are religious are more prone to struggle with it. I think one example of the religious spirit is when reason interferes with obedience. So like when we're making decisions as a church, it's a good thing to use logic. It's a good thing to maybe make a pro-con list. Those are all good things, and we of course would be seeking the Lord, but it is the religious spirit that makes excuses. It's unwilling to take that risk, make that change. Here we are with the greatest hope out there, and the religious spirit is busy looking inward. And pastors are not exempt. People often tell me that I look young, and I'm really hoping that that pays off at like 40 and 50. Because sometimes it's weird when you're hanging out with students and people confuse you for the students that you're working with. It's just awkward. <laughs> but I think because of that, when I first actually moved here, people thought, oh, well, you just, you just came here out of college. And that actually wasn't true. I had worked as a worship pastor for three years before moving to the Hoosier State. And as worship leaders, you know, we want to help people connect with God. We pray that the worship services we plan will bless people. As you can imagine, people have a lot of opinions on worship in the church. Now, not here, of course. But back then, they did. And I would amaze myself at how bent out of shape I could get with just like one or two criticisms. One time we were experimenting with the lighting in the sanctuary. It was so bright in there and lots of pink. Lots of pink. It's very weird. <laughs> I thought it might help people worship if it was darker. And just to help maybe eliminate distractions, help people feel less inhibited, you know, help people worship. Well, there was one person who was having none of it. She was not happy. And so she decided to send a pretty scathing letter to myself and the elder board. My response, like not great. Revealing about the state of my heart at the time. And the irony is not lost on me that in the midst of trying to improve worship, all I felt was anger and defensiveness. My response showed where I was putting my hope in people and it showed that I had fallen into a religious spirit that said, hey, my intentions were good, so it's not my problem if you're having trouble worshiping. How crazy is that? Hope overcomes that religious spirit by letting things roll off, by putting others above ourselves, by being inconvenienced. John 8 tells us that the religious leaders of the day, religious people, could not overcome their religious spirit. And they missed it. They missed out on hope. So we're officially at that part of the sermon where we're going to move away from what we need to experience. And now, what are we offering? Our world, the people around us, what are we going to do to offer the hope that we've experienced. Verse 42 is probably under a different heading in your Bibles, but I included verse 42 because it's a reminder of the season that we're in, Advent. Jesus says, I have not come on my own, but he sent me. 
Jesus came as the Christ child at Christmas. This year is my first year performing in Yuletide, which is the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra's Christmas show. And we've got a picture up here, I think. Look at those tap-dancing Santas. Now, I'm not actually in this picture. I think it's from a prior year. And let's be real. You knew you weren't going to get out of here this morning without a commercial. You know, come see this show. We close December 23rd, so get your tickets. It's been an incredible experience. You know, singing with a symphony is surreal. And our hosts, they're really fun. There's, a, there's an opera singer, and there's this guy that won The Voice. They're so nice. And they're so fun, good to work with, as is the rest of the cast. And you have everything from singers to aerialists. The music spans the spectrum from sacred music all the way to uptown funk. If you don't know that song, ask a student. (laughs) Like, what could be better than that? And for me, I love performing. It's always been one of my passions. I love music. I love to entertain people. And there's a really unique thing, like a shared experience in live theater. But it's not lost on me that what we offer people is fleeting. At the end of the show, the hosts, you know, thank the audience for coming. They say something about holiday spirit. And then we sing one more Christmas carol together. There's nothing wrong with that. It's fun. But the joy and love and hope that we would say we're spreading is based only on what we left on the stage. You know, what we offer our audience is temporary, a feeling, an emotion, and it doesn't last. I'm so grateful that the hope of Advent isn't like that. So worship team, if you guys want to start making your way up, our message in a sentence is we have to experience hope to offer hope. Thank you for not walking out at the beginning. (laughs) That would have been a hard thing to explain to Eric. They just left. (laughs) I'm believing God will use Eagle Church to spread hope. And there's an everydayness to that. You know our vision, more together every day? As you go through your day, parents, show your kids the hope of Advent. You know, students, as you go to school, share hope. And in the workplace, we can do the same. But I believe that we're called to intentionally plan to offer hope. There's everydayness, but then there's intentional planning. So if you're not maybe plugged into a ministry elsewhere here at Eagle, one of our partners, I would so encourage you to jump on board with that. Intentionally set aside time each week to offer hope. Eagle Kids always needs hope-filled adults, let alone other ways that you could serve here at Eagle. But we're also continuing to grow our relationship with Youth for Christ. It's hard to comprehend how there are so many young people just 10 miles from here who are in desperate need of tangible hope. And we're being invited in. Like, what a privilege that is to be invited in. You know, some of those kids have gone through more in their 15 years of life than we could even imagine. So stepping in to offer hope, even in small ways, makes big ripples. Offer hope to non-Christians and also to believers. 
I think sometimes we think Christians don't need reminders, so I'm just going to speak for myself. Please remind me. Like, life is hard. I need to be reminded that when things feel hopeless, we have a hope that is present and future, that Jesus has come and will come again. Hope for the believer means our best days are always ahead of us because our best is yet to come. And the hope that we offer the lost people in our lives is Jesus. It is freedom that they don't even know exists. And the greatest advertisement for hope is our lives lived with that hope.